Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for, for the book of Esther. And Lord, the things that we learn and take away from there, don't let us miss these key things for the time in which we live right now. And as we read through this, God, keenly open our understanding. By your spirit, your spirit gives life to the word. And Father, we ask that you would illuminate it to us and help us to understand the life-giving words that we are about to read, study, and let us better understand them and live them out. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. I asked a question uh, early on uh, that we posted up in our live stream, and that was, can you name the four main characters from the book of Esther? And uh, before you uh, look through the book, just think uh, out loud. Can you name those? Name those in the, maybe in the, in the room where you're at. Uh, the four main characters out of the book. Uh, what do we got here inside? What do you guys remember about the book of Esther? Mordecai. Haman is, uh, of course, the title of the, the message. Haman the hangman. Adeline got them all. Okay. Um, I want to encourage you to go back because we're not going to read the whole book of Esther. It's only 10 chapters, and the 10th chapter is not even really a chapter. It's a paragraph. So it's a very easy read. You can read the whole story. So this week, would encourage you to go back and read that and get ready for the second part, part two, next week. Let's start in uh, Esther chapter 5, beginning at verse 9. So Haman went out. That day joyful and glad in heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, and he went home. And he, set, he sent and called his friends and his wife Zeresh. And then Haman told them of the great riches, the multitudes of children, everything in which the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she's prepared. And tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman. So he had the gallows made. I want to point out over the next two Sundays, seven lessons from the book of Esther that we need to take away for the time in which you and I live. Now, I believe this story sets forth a picture. It not only gives us a piece of history, and please understand this, this is not a fairy tale. It's not uh, someone telling uh, some kind of a parable of some kind that has bits of truth in it, but is not the whole picture. This is actual historic fact. It is the, the reason that the Jews today celebrate the Feast of Purim. Purim is a, is a feast 
that is themed around uh, the time of Esther. The Feast of Purim takes a, uh, its theme from the, from the book of Esther and the, the meaning of the word, the word pur, the first part of it, P-U-R, it, it would uh, be referred to like the rolling of dice, the casting of lots, if you will. And of course, uh, put together, it references what happens on a day when you would, uh, you would set a particular day and you would roll the dice, to, so to speak, to see what would happen in that day. And what it's actually speaking of in this instance is a day that was set aside in this story that we're going to go through that was intended to be a day of destruction of the Jewish people. Very similar to what happened in the Holocaust where six million Jews were killed a man named Haman conspired to achieve this same thing in ancient times, approximately 400 years before Christ. And in the ancient Medo-Persian Empire, and I think we have a, a picture of that, Ahasuerus was the king, and, and uh, he is also known uh, as Xerxes, as we read through scripture. This was a mammoth empire, as you can see, one of the largest in ancient times, the largest before the Greek and the Roman Empire. And it's set in historic environment as a great lesson for all of humanity, especially, I think, for the Christian church. And you'll see as we go along, there is a key lesson in this that we learn about the sovereignty of God and how God rules in and through and beyond the works and the wisdom of man. But we also see in this for our day and our time, it also provides a, a magnificent picture, a picture of the living church and how the enemy uses every angle, uh, including politics, uh, to destroy and tear down the fabric of the church, which is not the building, but it is the people. And as surely as there is and was a conspiracy in this time to destroy the, the national entity of the Jewish people. There is a conspiracy by the powers of darkness, the adversary, our adversary, the enemy, Satan, to destroy and, and to tear apart the church piece by piece, person by person, individual by individual. But a greater picture here, too, of how Satan hates humanity. And the need... Uh, all we need to, to understand this is to understand that in the creation of humanity, God put his image on us, the Imago Dei. And, and though not everyone is in relationship with God, we are a reflection of God, even the purposes of, of what is, God has intended for us are reflective. Even when we're not following after God, there is a a, a light uh, glimmer of the image of the purposes of the mission of God in our lives. And Satan can't stand that. Man made in the image of God, even in the fallen state, is too much for him uh, to look at. And, and God's glorious intended purposes being revealed among humanity is something that, that he can't tolerate or can't stand. And I just call you back to uh, the early section of what we read to bring that truth out. And you, you read towards the, the end of this verse, it says that Haman cried out, yet all of this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Can you get a picture for a moment of the church sitting at the king of king's gates, calling out to God, 
And there, there is uh, that spirit that was behind Haman is that same spirit that seeks to kill, steal, and destroy God's people. This is set in a historical environment as a, as a great lesson for all of humanity. And I think for especially the Christian church as we look at it, man made in the image of God. I want to take a look at seven lessons from the book of Esther that we can gather. And the first one is, God does, not, God does occupy himself with the affairs of nations. There are times that we're not really clear on where we should be in our own uh, national story in terms of politics and things like this. But one thing is clear for us, and that is that God does occupy himself with the affairs of nations. God picks out who will be leaders, allows certain to lead, even at times when, when those leaders are not godly leaders. God raises up regimes. God tears down regimes. God has always been involved in the affairs uh, of, of the politics of the day, of, uh, of the affairs of nations and the things that are going on. And that's true of us right now. God is, is involved. He cares about what's going on in our nation, which calls us as Christians to care as well about what is happening around us. And to be conscious always of those from uh, low-level elections to high-level elections, that we are seeking out uh, God's wisdom as we begin to pray through how we respond. It's clear here that as we take a look at this story, that God's placement of Esther as queen and the ordered steps of her uncle, uh, who was in the right place at the right time to uncover a plot to kill the king, these are a part of the story, and it shows us that God was occupied with the affairs of that nation. God knows what is going on in nations around the world right now, and He is engaged through His people for the greatest mission to save those who are lost and to bring them back to Himself. And that's why He involves Himself in the affairs of nations. He seeks to get the message out, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to every nation all around the world. Now, I don't know how much you know about this story, but I want to kind of capture it for you briefly and tell you a little bit about this story. There are four main characters in this story, and they include the king, Ahasuerus or Xerxes, and they include this man we read about, Haman. They include Mordecai, who is the uncle of Esther, who becomes queen. And we see as the story unfolds how God uh, put them in the right place at the right time. It's, it's so key and so important, and it goes to our second point, which is God directs the steps of those who put their trust in Him. It's not an accident that they were there. I want to read a little bit out of the uh, passage of um, the book of, of Esther. During the time Mordecai, or during this time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Bigtha and Teresh, two of the king's officers, who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot, and he told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. 
How awesome is God to place us in the right place at the right time? When you belong to God, your steps are commanded by God. He orders each and every step. And I, I know that there are people who are listening right now that uh, you, you have wondered at times how, why God has led you to a place, a relationship, a church, a job, a community, only to discover in your, as you look back in your past at times how it really was divine providence that God led you the pathway that he led you, took you where he took you. Had he not, you would have missed out on a friendship, on being able to share your faith, on, on being able to be a part of a solution or someone else uh, providing for your need during a, a season of difficulty and challenge and trial. God directs and orders our steps. And Mordecai was at the right place at the right time, and God directed his steps. He found himself at the king's gate, overheard a conversation between two of the king's bodyguards of how they would assassinate the king. And he reports this to his uh, niece, who is Queen Esther, and she in turn tells all the people that need to be told to watch out for the king and to make sure that these men get put away. Uh, probably in this instant assassinated or taken out of the picture so that they couldn't do what they had intended to do. And all of this is building a favorable account on behalf of Mordecai because that unbeknownst to, to uh, Haman, who is, a, is out to kill the Jews, God is building favor with the Jewish people in the king's very court and in his very heart. And God is always doing things like this as we follow Him and we follow the leading of the Lord. I was thinking Mordecai could easily that morning have gone to Starbucks and he would have missed the whole thing, right? He could have sat down at his favorite table and, and ordered a latte and missed the whole event of what God had commanded and what God had ordered. And I know that, it's, it, that at times it's, you know, we, we may wonder why God is leading us particular ways. Listen, it is not good fortune or karma that you've fallen into, the place that you've fallen into. Your steps are commanded by God. They're ordered by God. And that's why you are where you're at uh, at the time that you're at. You know, we had a shower yesterday uh, for uh, the baby that is about to be born for Amanda uh, and uh, for Nick Avila. And uh, we were praying over them. And I was thinking, you know, there, there are times where you think, why, you know, are we bringing a child into the world at this time? God has ordered these steps. God has planned. And I'm excited to see this child and what God has in store for her and, and all the things she, she, she will accomplish in life. And thinking through uh, about my own grandchildren and the things that God has in store for them. For such a time as this is a quote that we take out of the book of Esther. When Mordecai says to her, who knows but what God has called you for such a time as this. You could be the one that could preserve the nation. The third thing that we see and we learn from uh, this story is that Satan seeks the worship of all, including the church. He wants to destroy all worship to God, destroy the very image of God, and in his, in his uh, crave to have all of the attention on himself, all of the worship coming to him, uh, all, all of the attentiveness to him, we see it played out uh, in this story. 
in, in chapter 3, beginning at verse 6, when Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him homage, he was enraged. Yet having learned who uh, Mordecai's people were, and listen to this, this is so important, he learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looks for a way to destroy Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. I want you to take this home with you and really understand it. When the enemy looks upon whoever you think is a spiritual giant in the community, whether it would have been in the past someone like Billy Graham, someone that I've looked up to like Jack Hayford, or, or the many hundreds and thousands of others that come before, or those now standing up as mighty giants across our nation who are leading great spiritual armies. When he looks at those men and he looks at those women, he doesn't only want to destroy their lives, but it reminds him that he wants to destroy the very people they lead. He wants to destroy the, the, the church in its entirety. And for the enemy, the, the man who is the giant in the faith is, is uh, equally a target with the, with the shepherd who has a small following. Uh, that he, he looks at both of them as, as being targeted for destruction, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And later in that uh, same chapter, chapter 3, beginning verse 13, dispatches were sent out by couriers for all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young, old, women, and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and so to plunder their goods. His purpose and his plan is to destroy everyone. He's not going to make any kind of deals with anybody. He's, he wants all of them destroyed. And when you think about the work that we do here in terms of raising up our children, the work that we do among youth, the work that we do here with young adults, with our, uh, our church family here, the enemy is out to destroy all of that. He is not targeting just certain spiritual leadership and maybe hoping the rest will scatter. He wants to destroy the image of God from every being, every person, every human. And Haman here is, is and, and this is very important for us to take home, Haman here is a picture of what happens when pride gets power. And this is, this is a fearful thing for you and I to understand. Here's what happens when pride gets power. Esther is the queen, and she is uh, one of many queens. And so when Mordecai comes to her in the story to, in, to ask her to intervene for the Jewish people because Haman has targeted them to destroy them all. She's fearful to go before the queen. Not everybody can come into his court, especially not women. And unless you have been invited, you dare not come to his court. For the king, if he doesn't look at you or he tells uh, one of those who are there that he doesn't want to see you, that you could be killed instantly. Your life is in jeopardy by literally just showing up in the very court where the king is holding court if you were not invited or asked to come. And Mordecai uh, begs her to come and, and to, to pleads for her to be there because he's beginning to see what happens 
when pride gets power. And Haman has, has been exalted by the king to a, a high position. He was given wealth. He was given a lot of things because of his work in the kingdom. And now he's come to believe that he's as good as the king or better. And the pride has risen up in his heart. And now he's empowered to do what he wants to do. And so he begins to take his aim at the people of God. Pride risen in any of us and added to power is so destructive. We see it play out in our politics from local communities and all the way up the ladder to uh, federal uh, roles. We see people who get empowered, who are seeking power because their pride tells them they know how to run your life better than you know how to run your life. And when they receive the power in order to make decisions, they begin to do uh, things to, to, to keep that power, pass laws and things to, to keep that power intact and to pass it down from generation to generation. We see uh, in, in many of our states and many of our cities where uh, the politics is just being passed down from one relative to the next, from, from uh, my, my grandpa was and now my dad was and now I am and it just goes on down the line and they have set an order that there's a pride that has risen up that they are better, they know better, they're better than you and as a result of that, now they have the power to exercise and to show you. It is so important that we understand not to give over to pride any power, but that we surrender and submit ourselves to God and allow Him to rule through us. All over the world, our nation included, there are examples of what happens when pride gets power. There's the oppression of the weak around the world, the weighting of the scales of justice so that what that person in power wants will ultimately prevail. We see it even now in our time, in our season, that the using of a crisis to advantage particular causes that uh, people may have, or that are in power may have above other things. We see it in the muzzling of voices that disagree. We see it in using the force of law and might to intimidate so that people won't do what they feel compelled to do. And so we want to call ourselves first back to God in the sense of breaking the spirit of pride over our own lives. And as I'm closing out this first message for us on the book of Esther, remembering the story and the evolution of Haman and how he rose up in power and his, uh, he rose up in pride and then had the power to do something with that pride to destroy a nation. And the enemy's work is always he's focused on the destruction of the church. And he has all of us in his sights to bring down and to destroy. We are at a key moment right now. And God has called us, whenever we pray, to begin with us, to humble ourselves and pray and seek his face, to call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to change us. 
God wants to break pride in our nation. But the first pride place he wants to break is in our own hearts. It starts with him breaking it in us. And it can become contagious in the sense of breaking it in the people around us, in lives around us. We see it so often, even in social media. Very often, unintentionally, we are self-promoters and, and doing things that give in to pride. And we're elevating that. And, and the danger is that as the power or the ability rises more, that pride gets even stronger and we would move in the direction the enemy would want us to move in. God wants to break pride in you before it gets power to destroy. I want to invite you, I'm inviting a worship team to come back, but I want to invite you to break pride by surrendering your life to Jesus Christ. We have to first start with, with our own lives. We have to begin with us. If we have aspired to make a change in our family, make a change in our community, make a change in our government nationally, make a change in our world, it all starts with letting God make a change in us. We are always bent in a direction that is going to take us towards pride, and that pride, when it's empowered, is going to do horrible things. And so God invites us first to surrender and allow him to break the pride inside of us and to be God in us and through us. There was never a point where Haman was willing to set aside his image, his pride, his trappings of, of success. And in the end of this story, we see that all of that is taken away from him. And the gallows that he built to hang Mordecai on become the gallows that he is hung on. And later, each one of his sons, ten sons, hung on the same gallows that he built to, to hang Mordecai. But it began when Mordecai and Esther decided to come to the king's gate, to press in. And it's a picture for us, this, not that this was a godly king, but as we look at that picture today, this was a type and a shadow in the Old Testament of what God is asking us to do. He's inviting us into his presence. Come. Come and humble yourself. Come into my presence. See me as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Exalt me. I will break the power of pride in you and in the world around you. And I will empower only that that has humility and seeks the very best of God for this world. But it begins by us making that surrender. And so I want to invite you to do that with me today. Lord Jesus, we come to you. And we ask you, Lord, to break us, break the pride in us. Lord, we, we unintentionally have been prideful and living prideful. And we've made statements and said things, Lord, that, that make it seem like we are more than we actually are. In social media, we've dressed up our image 
and we only want to show the best. We don't want anyone to see the wrinkles and so we use filters. It's just a, a small picture of the way that we are living our life. We're trying to be something that we're not. So today we come to you in full surrender and we say, Lord, you are the only one in God and King. And we surrender ourselves to you, all of our value, all of our worth, all, of, all that we have become, all that we will be. And God, we start with us. And I know if you change me, my family will change. I know if you change my heart, my, my spouse will want to change. I know, God, if you, if you break me and you make me who you want me to be, others will look at me at my workplace, in my community, and they will want what is inside of me. They will want you. If your image shines clearer than my image, lives will be changed. People will be saved. They will come to know freedom as they've never known it before. And maybe, Lord, even politics will change as we one by one surrender and wholeheartedly begin to seek you and make you Lord and leader over our lives. So Father, we're asking you to break pride in us before it gets a chance to get power and do something destructive. Before we become husband and wife, before we become parents, before we become grandparents, before, um, Lord, we, we become uh, a, a leader in our workplace, we get a management title. Before any of this, break the pride inside of us that when power comes, we live underneath uh, the authority of you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we never seek to do our will, our best for us. Father, we're going to thank you for that and praise you for it. In Jesus' name.